There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, quick note before we start the show today. This is usually where I've been telling you uh, that we really need your support right now, um, and we do. Today, I'm going to tell you about what we're doing with that support. Our show, Commons, has pivoted and has launched an emergency season, Commons Pandemic, and the first episode is out. And what they're going to be doing is a series of episodes looking at long-term care, where 79% of the COVID-19-related deaths in Canada have occurred in long-term care. I know you've read about this. I know it's a it's a disturbing story, especially what happened in Montreal. And I know that everyone's tolerance for disturbing stories were pushed to our limit. But it is incredible what the Commons team can do to tell stories in a documentary format that brings them to life. I did not know what I thought I knew about this. And it's a travesty. It's disgraceful. It's not something, you know, we keep hearing about how much better Canada is doing than other places or how dumb Trump is. This is a humanitarian crisis in Canada right now. We have a responsibility to bear witness. And the Commons team has quickly put their powers of gripping storytelling towards the story. You need to listen to this episode of Commons Pandemic. Go check it out. That's what we're doing with your support. Thank you. Tim Bousquet, editor of the Halifax Examiner, joining me again from Halifax. Deja vu. Welcome back, Tim. Hi, Jesse. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being here again. We need you here because I want to talk with you about what we have learned since your last appearance last week about the unfurling coverage, the slow drip of information about the mass shooting in your province, Nova Scotia. And on a lighter note, we will talk about the star-studded gala, the cavalcade of Canadian celebrity that 11 million people watched and nobody saw. (laughs) Good to have you back. Oh, boy. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Melanie Rampin, Peter Guzda, Kabir Dillon, Antoine Fortin, Rivka Kushner, Brendan Neufeld, Carl Repka, and Alastair Stewart. My name is Alistair Stewart and I'm a medical researcher living in Vancouver. My wife Christine and I have been Canada Land supporters for a few years now. 
We're regular listeners to almost all the podcasts and are particularly happy to hear Sandy Garasino bringing a West Coast angle to Oppo. As a newish Canadian, I particularly value the diversity of voices and views that Canada Land brings forward. Tim, I'm so glad that you're able to join again this week because, uh, you know, last week we spoke about how the RCMP were withholding information. They were slow to provide information. The media is just beleaguered and did not have the resources, I think, to hold them accountable in those crucial early hours after the Nova Scotia shooting. And then right after you and I spoke, the Halifax Examiner, you guys published just a damning account of why the RCMP may have been stingy with information, really documenting uh, blow by blow all the opportunities they had to warn people about this shooter on a rampage through the emergency alert system and and their failure to do so. And uh, I want to talk with you about that because, of course, you know, police are always withholding of information sort of by default. But in this case, there are real questions as to whether or not they had a, a self-interest in covering up some of their actions or, or their, their lack of actions. I mean, I learned about this through the Halifax Examiner. I learned about this through other reports. There was this bizarre report about two Mounties showing up at the Onslow Belmont Fire Hall during this mass shooting. And this fire hall was where a lot of locals had been uh, hiding. They had been yeah. uh, sheltering from this from this threat. And then the fire hall was shot at and the shooter was nowhere near the fire hall. Uh, and assumedly it was one of these Mounties and maybe they mistook the other Mountie. That's where my mind went for being the perpetrator who was disguised as a Mountie. But information is just, you know, coming at us and... I'm still struggling to make sense of it all. I'm hoping that you can get us uh, up to speed with the story of the story and the struggle to get a consistent account and a full account. Let me walk you through a bit of this. We know that on uh, Saturday night, the 18th, RCMP were called to Portapique. There was one injured person, apparently, who, uh, when they arrived at the scene, they found this one man. And he said that he was shot by the gunman who was passing him in another car. Very quickly, police discovered that they had a mass murder scene. They uh, discovered 13 bodies. Well, total of 13 bodies. We don't know what they discovered right then and there because some of the bodies were in burning houses and it, it, presumably it took till the next day to identify them. But certainly on Saturday night, they knew they had a gruesome and terrible scene in Portapique. And as we discussed last week, the RCMP for whatever reason, decided that their means of communicating to the public was simply to use their Twitter account. And what they tweeted at, you know, 11 o'clock on, on Saturday night was that there was a firearms complaint in Portapique. Not that there was a mass murder scene, but a firearms complaint. The gunman had escaped. Now, perhaps you could argue that the RCMP thought they had him trapped in uh, Portapique, but they didn't. And they figured that out the next morning at 6.30 when the gunman's uh, on-again, off-again girlfriend or, or spouse, we're not sure what her relationship is, uh, came out of the woods. She'd been hiding in the woods at 6.30 in the morning and said, hey, he has another replica RCMP cruiser. The, the RCMP had determined overnight that the gunman had three, and one was here in Dartmouth and in, in the Halifax area, and the Halifax police found that overnight, and two others were on fire 
in Portapique, and RCMP knew about that overnight. And here's this woman coming out of the woods, and she says, he has a fourth one. And then someone else says, oh, yeah, I saw that car driving out at 1030 last night uh, through a field. So at 630, definitely by 7 o'clock, they knew that uh, the gunman had escaped and was at large. About at the same time, he showed up at a house ooh, 50, 60 kilometers north of Porter Peak and murdered a couple that he knew and set their house on fire. The man across the street happened to be a retired firefighter and so showed up to address the fire situation and he was murdered as, as well. There's no suggestion that anything the RCMP could have done would have saved those people. Uh, but what happened next is telling. Uh, the gunman left. Still no RCMP warning. They did, they did not activate the provincial emergency alert system that makes everyone's phone ring. Um, the gunman drove through Wentworth, uh, about a 15 minute drive from there and, um, murdered a woman just walking along the side of the road and then drove an additional 30 or 40 kilometers to a town called Debert and, uh, pulled over as a fake cop, pulled over first one nurse. Uh, she pulled over her car and he murdered her. And then he went 400 meters down the, down the road and pulled over a second nurse in the same fashion and murdered her as well. We can't prove a counterfactual, but had the emergency alert system been activated and had the RCMP put out there that there was a mass murderer on the loose, you could argue that perhaps these two women would have not been on the road and would have been leery of being pulled over by a cop. None of that messaging had gone out. The murderer kept on his way. He just happened upon a cop sitting on the side of the road uh, south of Truro and shot that cop, but the, the cop survived the gunshot wound and drove away. Another RCMP constable, Heidi Stevenson, rammed his car and they, uh, there was a, a gun battle apparently, and the gunman killed Constable Heidi Stevenson. Uh, a passerby, a guy named Joey Weber, just happened to be uh, first on the scene and he saw, you know, this mayhem going in and got out of his car to assist and he was killed. He had not received any warning. We do know that uh, he had read the Twitter account, or I'm told he did, mm -hmm. and was aware that something was going on, but uh, he would not have known the magnitude of, of the issue. He would not have known that there was this mass murderer on the loose. And then the killer went on to uh, another woman's house, uh, someone he had a professional relationship, another denturist. And um, we don't know exactly how that transpired, but he killed her and took her car, changed out of his clothes there, put on new clothes and, and took her car. And um, her car kind of terribly, ironically, or I don't know, was uh, was nearly out of gas. So he had to pull into a, a gas station down the road, a place everyone in Halifax knows as the big stop in Enfield. And um, there just happened to be another cop also gassing up at that gas station. And so um, that cop killed the gunman. But, uh, you know, retracing that, it took us a, a good long while to piece that narrative together about what happened. And again, you can't prove a counter narrative. But there are at least three people who, you know, possibly would be alive today had 
that emergency alert system been activated? That's more detail than I've heard anywhere else. And thank you for providing that narrative. I think that like the guessing game as to whether or not people's lives could have been spared, and, and there is reason to believe that, that they may have been, is only one part of this. There's so many reasons why we need to know what happened. We need to know every detail of this. Experts need to know about it. They, they study cases like this. So they could everything from first responder response time. Why did they feel they had him in the perimeter when they didn't? to kind of analysis of, of where these types of crimes come from. Uh, the fact that this started with domestic violence and the fact that it seems like he was targeting women that he knew and killed so many women. Here's a statement that uh, Johanna May Black issued on behalf of a group of uh, feminists in Nova Scotia. It is now becoming clear that the mass shooting of Saturday, April 18th and Sunday, April 19th began with acts of torture and violence towards the murderer's female partner. There are reports in the media that the murderer allegedly got into a fight with his partner at a party. Going home with her, his violence escalated. He tied her up and inflicted a significant assault, according to the RCMP. She managed to escape into the woods and hide. He then went on to kill 22 innocent people, 12 women and one female youth. This information is important. It tells us that hatred for women fueled this act of mass murder. Much appeared pre-planned. Why did it take so long for the RCMP to tell us about this conflict with his partner? Could it be that they were embarrassed that they had to find out from her not till many hours later that he was wearing an RCMP uh, uniform, that he was active in a car they didn't know about, that the information came from her that they couldn't figure that he was not in their perimeter? I'm speculating here, but I'm left to speculate because I can't think of a good reason why it took. I know that you and others were asking these types of questions, and I, I can't think of a, a legitimate reason for them to withhold that information. I can't either. Um, I, I think it in part reflects the culture of the institution is that they, they are tight-lipped, even when they should not be. You know, the, the gunman is dead. There's no reason to withhold information at this point, at least this kind of information. We do Tim, know. Tim, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, are we ignoring the obvious? Like, the reasons for them to withhold information might be more than the, just that they're tight-lipped. If they sh like, fired shots at a fire hall where civilians were sheltering, if they didn't act as quickly as they might have, if they were in the dark, if they didn't uh, issue the emergency alerts that they should have, if, if people might have died because of their incompetence, I have questions about the killing of the gunman himself. Did he have his weapon out? Do we, you know, I only know that from a Joe Warmington column that I think was fed to him by the police. So, you know, they're facing questions about their behavior here so that they have all kinds of personal interest reasons to withhold information beyond just a blue shield, I don't know, culture of tight lipness. Uh, is, yeah, is yeah, point taken. I, I agree with that. You know, I, I try to put myself in the responding officer's shoes and I can understand that there was tremendous confusion on the ground. And we know that some of these cops, I mean, Heidi Stevenson, the woman who was killed, certainly displayed heroism. Perhaps she should not have been put in that situation. And we should know about that. But she personally was very brave. And the other end of that spectrum is there's humans being humans and cops are humans. Uh, some of them are going to be afraid and, and jitterly and do stupid things. And that appears to be the case with shooting up the fire hall. And it's, it's a miracle no one was killed there. We now know that the, uh, the killer had passed by that area probably 15 or 20 minutes previous to the, the shooting. So it was completely, um, unprovoked by anything. All I can come up with is that it, someone was very afraid. But, uh, yeah, I think these are institutional problems more than uh, this cop or that cop. I think, uh, we have to look at, 
how has the institution of the RCMP uh, trained for this? We've had other mass killings in Canada, not not to this extent, but there must be training for it. How has that training played out? Did it play out here? There's been uh, Malthorpe and, and Moncton are two previous examples of RCMP being involved in these sort of active shooting situations. And there were lessons that were supposed to have been learned from those incidents. Were they? And if not, why not? The communication is a huge problem in that, uh, again, it's very possible people are dead now who would not be dead as a result of failures of communication. Yes, uh, how did the gunman die? Uh, one question I have is why mm, 11, 12 hours into this active shooting situation um, when the RCMP knew that the gunman was running across the province, why was uh, Constable Chad Morrison, the, the one who was shot and wounded, uh, why was he sitting alone in a car waiting for Heidi Stevenson to show up? Uh, should not those two officers have been warned to either be together or, or not to, you know, that there was someone heading their way? It appears that Chad Morrison was completely unaware that the gunman was in an RCMP vehicle. So we need to know, learn more about that. Are you able to find out answers to these questions from those early days when it was so hard to even just get one question in front of the RCMP? Has there been more press availability opportunity? Are they taking questions? Are they providing more information? Is your job of getting a definitive and detailed account of this getting easier as the days go by? Somewhat. Uh, so they had initially, they had this uh, commanding officer, uh, Chris Leather, in charge of the press conferences and dealing with the media. And uh, he was terrible. They replaced him with a fellow named Darren Campbell, who um, I can't say it any other way than than he um, comes across as a human, as uh, trying to be helpful, even though, you know, I would say he's he's not as forthcoming as he should be. He's much better than than Leather was. We have a uh, a conference call, basically a virtual press conference, and they control who asks the questions. So I was not able to ask a question. Was that just yesterday? Yeah, yesterday. Arguably, I, I know as much as any reporter about this, and yet I wasn't able to ask my questions. And that is something that I think is unique to this virtual conference call situation where they can pick and choose the question askers. If there was a press availability at a conference, a scrum, you could assert and, and be a bit more aggressive and, and force your question in front of them. You know, they're always trying to move on to the next question or, or, or control who asked the questions at those events. But there are ways that reporters can get their questions out there. Yeah, you know, I, I saw this uh, with the COVID press conferences. So the first three or four were actual press conferences at the media room at Province House. And I attended, and because I'm a big mouth, I was able to assert myself and, and ask questions. And um, it concerned me, uh, that dynamic. And I, I don't know what the answer to this is, but I have a, a colleague, uh, Shana Luck at CBC, uh, a soft-spoken woman who was also at those press conferences, and she was being talked over by the men in the room, including me. And, you know, since we've gone to the virtual COVID press conferences, she always gets her questions in. And they're good questions. She's a good reporter. So there's that dynamic as well. And I'm conscious of that. I don't know how we address that other than, I guess, us male reporters in a scrum giving space for our colleagues there. Uh, but that's certainly an issue. All right, Tim. Well, I do appreciate you telling us everything that you can up to this point. I think we're closer, but still very far away from knowing exactly what happened. And uh, 
I hope it just gets more and more open. I just don't know what is to be served by keeping that information away from us, aside from my speculation that that somehow serves the RCMP. I could say this. I mean, our reporting's continuing. And I had an hour-long conversation this morning with my lawyer in an attempt to pry open certain records. And um, I hope to get to that point soon. Tim, as you recall, from just one week ago, we duly note items that uh, might otherwise escape the public's attention. Do you have something to share today? I do, Jesse. I want to give a shout out to the National Firearms Association of Canada, which, believe it or not, sent what they called a reporter to this RCMP press conference about the mass murders in Nova Scotia. And that reporter got called on for a question. And me, the reporter with the Halifax Examiner, did not get called on at that press conference. And so I just want to, you know, acknowledge that there are some hardworking uh, people who describe themselves as reporters working for Canada's National Firearms Association, and, and they should be given big props for successfully answering a question when the um, the old guy reporter uh, working in the Podunk newsroom in, in Halifax was not able to do that. What the fuck? Duly noted. I want to duly note a complaint issued by Quebecor, the big media company in, of course, Quebec, a pretty strongly worded complaint. The CRTC hearings about uh, license renewal for the CBC are underway. Quebecor, they wrote a letter to the CRTC and accused the CBC of disgracefully and unscrupulously exploiting the COVID-19 crisis for a competitive advantage in the broadcasting business. And there's some very serious accusations made here. The first claim is that the CBC is selling advertising well below market rates, undercutting private competitors in a bid to weaken its competitors. And um, that is something that I have long suspected in, in podcast ad sales. I mean, of course, we're, you know, we have this uh, competitor whose job it is to make podcasts at a loss, you know, which is I support. I think they should be making content as well as they can and offering it for free, but then competing with us for ads. And from what I could tell, they're selling ads for uh, whatever they can get. And Quebecor is saying that they're doing the same thing in the TV business. And, and uh, it goes on from there because what they're saying also, and I think this is much more serious, is that what the CBC is doing, because they're not allowed to sell advertising space in their news coverage, of course, or on the radio, but citing anonymous clients and an advertising agency, Quebecor says that advertisers who buy CBC ad space on TV or on their website are then given interviews and non-sponsored live coverage on the radio. That's a very serious, like, you know, like you're getting, first of all, they're not supposed to be using those airwaves for any kind of sold exposure. And then it's a cardinal sin to not label sponsored content as sponsored content. So that's a big accusation and a story that I would be very happy to report if, if those sources were ours. Yeah. Um, and the final accusation is that during COVID-19, live events dried up as a, as a uh, you know, sports and whatnot for television. CBC then went really predatory and overpaid to secure broadcast rights for other programming. And of course, you know, CBC is sort of like inured from COVID-19 to a large degree because they get a billion and a half dollars from government, whether or not the advertising market dries up. So it's a pretty scathing and damning document. Um, but I think they have to prove these allegations. And, you know, Quebecor has no shortage of news organs. 
I, of course, would love to hear from these sources so we could actually report this as a news story and not as a missive against a competitor in a CRTC filing. But, you know, Pierre-Carl Peladeau uh, of Quebecor, of course, has a wild hair up his ass for years about the CBC. Some people think that I uh, have a chip on my shoulder with the CBC. You should meet PKP. <laughs> this guy has had it out for the CBC for a long, long time. But, you know, it has the whiff of truth about at least some of this stuff. And if they have sources and confirmation and they're using the language of journalism to make these claims about the CBC, I want to see the receipts. I should say, Jesse, I, I'm on contract with the CBC for a, a project I'm working on. So um, just to put that out there as a, you know, a disclosure, that's the word. But uh, sure, the CBC is this giant organization and a big player. But allegations like that, uh, I think you need to support them. I, I, I understand this was in a filing and not as a news report. Uh, but those are very serious allegations. And and. And just to kind of toss those into a filing, it feels like a fishing expedition. Perhaps. I mean, it is consistent with things we've been hearing from small publishers across the country that as soon as they prove financial viability in a market often deserted by CBC, CBC moves in. Like they've taken a predatory attitude is known and documented, but these specific allegations do require substantiation. And that's, you know, difficult for me to say because I, I have my own disclosures and conflicts here because I am a business person who's, you know, like trying to compete with a state funded competitor who is also for some reason in the advertising business for the same clients and uh, does not have to show a profit or, or anyhow, I will leave it there and say we need to know more about this. Duly noted. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Tim, Stronger Together <laughs> was 
all of this division and divisiveness in the in the media industry they talk about, all of the big TV networks in Canada got together and they all broadcast this this COVID-19 special and they pulled in 11.5 million viewers in Canada. I mean, that just doesn't happen. I don't think that's happened since the Tragically Hip's last concert. Like, we do not watch, I mean, we don't watch network TV like we used to, and we certainly don't watch Canadian network TV. This was just a really incredible television event that I did not watch. Did you? No, I, I didn't even know about it. <laughs> like, one out of three Canadians did, and... uh I don't know. I don't know if I'm in any position to talk about this. I mean, listen to this. It was a, a cavalcade of Canadian A-list celebrities, people like um, Howie Mandel, Jason Priestley, Getty Lee, Randy Bachman, Joe Piscopo, Cirque du Soleil, the California Raisins, Mr. T, I didn't even know he was Canadian, E.T., uh, the Noid, the Pizza Hut Noid, he's Wait aged 10 e E.T.? Uh, Carl Heinz Schreiber did a dance number. No, half of those people were not involved. I didn't see this. I'm sorry. I apologize. I, <laughs> I, I tried to to pick up the pieces of this and follow up the next day on social media and watch the the, the sing-alongs and see why everybody was so engaged by this. And it, it really just struck me as like from another universe. I mean. It feels to me like just this, uh, like celebrity itself feels broken to me right now. And seeing the celebrities all at home without their makeup on, without like scripts, like Drake just riffing at the end, freeform, like literally phoning in this like advice from Drake was how this thing ended. And really, I, it felt like he was just kind of making it up on the spot and it was not good. You know, Jesse, there's a, a counterpoint here in Nova Scotia, which is the the ongoing, continuing on Facebook, the Nova Scotia's kitchen party for COVID-19. And, you know, this province prides itself on its musical tradition and it's a continuous, more or less, concert of musicians just putting their own work on Facebook uh, in their kitchens literally. Um, the, the most famous, of course, was 17-year-old Emily Tuck, who was murdered in the, in the mass killing. Her violin performance, her fiddle performance has gone viral, but um, it's ongoing. And these are just regular people. These are the people that live down the street and around the corner. Uh, it sounds like a, a much funner time than this celebrity nonsense. Well, you know, the videos of regular people resonate and does feel like a connective exercise in showing you like you're going through something and other people are going through something too. And here's what's happening in their homes and the regularness of those scenes and those videos does strike a nerve. And then alternately when celebrities are like, look, I'm regular like you, here I am in my mansion. Um, <laughs> it's just striking such a sour note to me. Anyhow, I mean, a lot of people watch the stronger together thing like, okay, here's a video that um, Scarborough's Lily Singh put on the internet. What the actual fuck, Jesse? <laughs> it was well-intentioned, you know? I think I won't do the accent that she attempts, but I think her message was to the ladies, whoever they may be. If you are a lady who uh, likes chocolate bars, Lily Singh approves of you. That's what she wanted the world to know, that all of the various uh, women are okay by her. But a lot of people, I, I think, here's the thing about it. It is a gross act of cultural appropriation, I think. But she must be bewildered by the backlash because this is what she's been doing for years. 
right? Like this is nothing new. And there's there's a much larger conversation that I want to have with, with people in, in the communities involved. I think it's actually really, it's not, it's not just straight ahead cultural appropriation. There's interesting stuff about Russell Peters and Scarborough and Toronto that doesn't excuse, but, but I want to talk about it with people who are, who are deeply involved and have a lot to say about it. But what I bring it up now is just that like the things that she built her fame and her career on and made millions from aren't working right now. And I feel like celebrity itself is broken and malfunctioning. Like the, the whole idea of that aspirational type of content just feels just so tone deaf at this moment. Yeah, in some, in some degree, I, you know, celebrity culture is the ultimate capitalistic expression. You know, you, you have value because of who you are and that increases your value more. And it ain't working in these times. Uh, capitalism isn't working. You know, um, we're retrenching. We're, we're starting to value things that aren't, um, increasing capital and money or social capital. We're reconnecting with our families, our friends. We're calling each other on the actual telephone, uh, instead of email and texting. And it's a reset for society. And I think it, in that sense, it's a good thing. I think that that has a lot of truth to it. And I think it's one thing for those words to come out of your mouth or people who I think were already engaged in maybe a critique of capitalism before this happened. But when something on a cultural level to people who maybe are not really thinking or having that conversation, just like something feels wrong and off with it. And I don't know, maybe that's not true. Maybe the success of the Stronger Together thing belies that point. But I kind of feel like the way that people responded to that, uh, you know, what was it, that Gal Gadot, every, all the celebrities, you know, singing Imagine, or the way that Madonna in her bathtub was lampooned, or the way that Lily Singh's video fell flat when it's just the same kind of stuff she's been doing for years. It does indicate to me that people are just like, it's not working. We're fed up with it. It's not delighting us. We don't want to go live those fantasy lifestyles. And there is something that has changed about the way that we just sort of process glittery, glitzy stuff. And, and I don't know, maybe... I. I'm inclined to agree with you that it's because we're kind of rediscovering more important connections in a way that was like, I don't know, kind of moralistic before to say like, oh, money isn't everything and your your neighbor is more important to you than your whatever dreams or whatever like banger of a song or, you know, TikTok video. You're, I don't know. It's just like it's being made real, you know, like what matters is being rendered practical and physical and real. Let's hope so. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. It has never been easier to support us here at Canada Land, get ad-free versions of our shows, support things like the new season of Commons. Just click the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join or just send us an e-transfer at support at canadalandshow.com. If you do support us through the show notes or canadalandshow.com, you'll get an ad-free feed of Canada Land straight to your podcatcher, $5 Canadian every month. Email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send and your emails are helping to get me through this, to tell you the truth. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. We have an Instagram account at Canada Land Show. Tim Bousquet, where can people find you and your Halifax Examiner? You can find the Examiner at halifaxexaminer.ca and I'm on Twitter at Tim underscore Bousquet, B-O-U-S-Q-U-E-T. It's well worth your time. Go have a look at that right now and support them if you can. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink if that's your thing, and listen to the new season of Commons Pandemic. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. 
Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you.